Good morning. Uh, I'm here from New York, and uh, it's really hot here. <laughs> I'm really uncomfortable. Um, so I know you probably are cold because the air conditioning is on, but uh, I'm afraid I'm going to have some sweat stains. Uh, but it's good to be here. I've never been to Georgia before. Uh, I've been in 43 states, and this is the 44th, so we'll see if this is a good trip or not. <clears throat> I'm really honored, really, uh, really, really uh, moved that you're all journeying through my book. Um, so it's not just a book for me. It, it came out of a lot of pain and labor and uh, exploration in my own church and uh, to let you know how it sparked, uh, one Sunday uh, during the Romney and Obama election, believe it or not, uh, which makes that makes uh, what we've recently experienced seem like tiddlywinks, right? Um, but one Sunday, a dear woman came to me after church, right after uh, preaching, and she said, Dan, I think I have to leave. Uh, I don't feel like I can be myself. Uh, with, I'm a, she said, I'm a conservative and I don't feel like I'm accepted and welcomed here. I feel um, shamed by the progressives in our church and I have to leave. Um, I pleaded with her to stay and that she was welcomed and loved and her voice was uh, accepted at the table, but it wasn't enough. And then two weeks later, uh, a couple came to me with the same intense concern uh, from the opposite perspective. And they said, Dan, we think we have to leave knowing there are people here that have such oppressive beliefs. Uh, us, we believe that uh, the conservatives that are supporting uh, Romney are oppressive and perpetuating injustice. And we can't stay in a church that gives voice to that perspective. And they left, and I pleaded with them to stay, telling them that they had a voice at the table. So that's going back uh, quite a few years, and I didn't really know how to respond to that other than just pleading. And uh, what broke my heart was that both of these people really represented a culture in my own church, but probably bigger than that, the culture of the church, where we can't really stay at the table. Rather than move towards one another in love, we choose division and detachment. That's just a preface to why I began to explore love over fear. And the more I explored what was happening culturally and happening in the human heart around politics and social issues, I discovered that the root cause is fear. We like to think it's about policy differences or about right or wrong, but the fuel behind why we can't seem to converse with one another in civil and kind and open ways is because we are generally afraid of one another. How many have this experience? Uh, if you didn't have this experience, you're lucky, but when you're 9 or 10 or 11 and it's bedtime and you get in bed and they your mom or dad turns the lights off, you start to believe that there are monsters under the bed. Who has not had that experience? See, we've all been there. That feeling that there are monsters about to gobble us up. If we let any of our appendages off the side of the bed, they will grab them and yank us underneath, right? Have you had that feeling? And it's so visceral, it's so real, you are convinced there are monsters literally going to gobble you up. I remember that feeling, and I had a lot of night terrors and, and, and feelings of, of monsters. And so one uh, night, actually one afternoon, and then I executed this plan at night, was that I was going to assemble my G.I. Joe guys. Do people still play with G.I. Joes? My G.I. Joes and my tanks on the perimeter of my bed. So literally on my bed, I put G.I. Joes all the way around. Somehow that was going to create a barricade where the monsters couldn't like penetrate and come over. That was the first night I actually felt asleep. The, the, the feeling of monsters 
things that can hurt us is powerful. It makes us believe things are there that are not really there. It makes us exaggerate that things are going to get us when they can't really get us. It makes us see monsters in things that are not monsters. Fear is powerful. This is my hypothesis. It is the most powerful, ruinous force on the planet. Fear started back in the Garden of Eden. The spark, the seed, the match lit. But the story first starts this way. The Father, the Son, the Spirit engaged in a fascinating conversation. And they make humanity. For let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, and give them everything, seed-bearing plants in the face of the whole earth, in every tree that has fruit on it. This will be yours. God says, all this I have made for you, and it is very good. So we get this picture of beauty. Out of the overflow of love between Father, Son, and Spirit brims this new creation. And then suddenly, fear slithers into the picture. And fear begins to ask, poke, prod questions. Maybe, maybe God's holding out on you. Maybe you don't have all the information. Maybe you don't have what you need. Our security, our safety, our significance, our status are all being teased at by the enemy. And this is the seed that grows into an oak tree that begins to flood the world, the voice of fear, the feeling that maybe things are not okay, that God is not good, that God is not caring for us, that there's not enough for us to be satisfied and stable. It's really interesting, later in Genesis 3, it says, that's, that it says this, it says, the wisest of all creations that the Lord made is Satan. The wisest of all creations by God is Satan? Satan is sharp, smart, brilliant, wise. And this is how often fear disguises itself. I'm just being wise. I'm just looking out for myself. Fear doesn't show up obnoxious. It shows up wise and sly. Fast forward to the 21st century, the moment that we're in right now, and fear is sold to us on a daily basis. After 9-11, which is a significant turning point in our country, fear began to build aggressive momentum, began to infiltrate advertising, marketing, one of a Purell, a Purell ad just actually two years ago said it put a, a puppy up on the you know on, on the commercial and says this is a cute puppy your best friend might actually believe be your worst enemy what cute little puppy worst enemy trying to trying to play with our minds that that what you feel comfortable with and safe with actually might be a monster. Purell. What they were trying to do is get you to buy their stuff so you kept cleaning your hands every time you touched your dog, right? And then Kellogg's. Cereal. I mean, the cutest stuff on their boxes. Suddenly, they are saying that their cereals can cure diseases. They jumped on this bandwagon, and they claimed that to, that to bolster, your, bolster your child's immunity, you should buy Kellogg's cereal. Well, the Federal Trade Commission finally got around to debunking that claim and made them stop using that commercial, right? But it goes on and on and on and on, appealing to fear and concern and possible injury and hurt and danger. I like to say that sex 
intrigues, but fear sells. It's fear that makes us act and respond and move. Fear just works. It just works. It also energizes. Fear rallies and brings energy. The raw experience of having a common enemy bands us together and energizes us for action. Fear can make us buy things, but it also can stimulate us as a group of people. In the late 1980s, a group of psychologists were really, really fascinated by how people did things. What would stimulate them to actual action and movement? They wanted to explore the brain and and they developed a series of tests with over 3,000 participants to determine what made people behave and act. And they determined that the most powerful influencer to action is fear. And they use these code words in uh, online forums and in live scenarios, the code words of hurt, danger, unsafe, peril, problematic, injure, sick, threat. And they tested them out on people to see if they saw that word, what they would do. Well, you already know the answer. 93% of people, when they saw one of those words, responded immediately and did something with it. On the opposite end of the spectrum, they also tested out the words of care and good and hope and love. Nice words. People did not respond when they saw those words. And they did this extensive study, and it eventually became what is called the Terror Management Report. A literal report was produced. And it was an inside scoop on how to make people do things using these code words. How to elicit action. Not surprisingly, in the late 1990s, politicians discovered this report. It has now become a formal guidebook on creating political speeches. I know this sounds like a conspiracy, but you just can look it up and find out. It has become the way they write speeches. Just our recent presidential election, both candidates, just in case you think that I am biased towards one or the other, I'm going to read to you one of their clips of their speeches. One from Donald Trump. The attacks on our police... The terrorism in our cities threaten our very way of life. Many have seen the violence in our streets, the chaos in our communities. Many have witnessed the terror of thugs and rapists and lawbreakers personally, and we are their victims. You hear the code words all over the place. If I just took the name off that, you would start to shake a little. Hillary Clinton was no better. I'm the last thing standing between you and the apocalypse, she told the women in the World Summit. Power over our bodies is under violent attack. The only way to survive is if we beat back the deep-seated cultural codes and the religious beliefs that threaten to enslave us. You hear the, the code words of fear in both of these candidates. They are both manipulating us to respond to action. This is not haphazard. Both parties use the terror management report in the creation of their speeches. And it's been happening for the last two or three elections. Fear is the shortest, quickest, easiest way to energize people. Why does it work? Well, there are neurological reasons for this. This is not going to just be a TED Talk. We'll get to the Bible in a second. <laughs> there are neurological reasons. There are reasons in the very wiring of our brain why we respond to politicians who use fear, why we respond to ads in fear. 
The amygdala, anybody familiar with brain science at all? The little, like, the little pea part of our brain, a little, little lima bean in there, is responsible for the emotions of impulse and automatic response of disgust and excitement and anger and fear. Whenever we fear, feel fear, our amygdala lights up and it screams at us. If you're in the woods and you see a bear, your amygdala goes, right? And it either is going to attack the bear to kill it or it runs like Hades in the other direction. You don't go up to the bear and cuddle it and say, hey, what's up, right? Because the amygdala only has two responses, attack or avoid. Our bodies receive a chemical release every time the amygdala lights up. It's also where we get our sex drive from. And every time we feel fear, we get dopamine. We get a literal drug that surges into our body when we feel fear. Fear is addictive. The more we stimulate fear towards those we are afraid of or don't understand or are unfamiliar to us, we become drug addicts. And this is where we find ourselves in right now in the 21st century. The church, the world, is addicted. I'm addicted to fear. Fear just feels better than love. I'm trying to be honest with you. Because if we live hyper-spiritualized and think love just feels better, you're going to find yourself slipping right back into fear. Telling yourself you're not afraid when you really are. Fear is powerful. And it makes us see people as monsters. When you're a kid, the things in your room you thought were monsters. The lamp on your nightstand. When you grow up as an adult, you think you outgrew fear, but it's just become more sophisticated. And now it's in the faces of people. It's in people groups. Just this morning, just to do a fresh check on my Facebook feed, that's not a good way to get ready for worship in the morning. I was told just by scrolling who I should fear. Any guesses? What do you got? Who should we fear? Who are we told to fear just by scrolling through? What's? Migrants, yes. What's that? Russia? Is that what she said? Yeah, you're right. What else? The AOC? I don't even know what that is. North Korea. Yes. Michigan fans. <laughs> what else? What's that? Your parents, your family. Lawmakers. Conservative Christians. What? The police. Gluten. <laughs> well, listen, my body does fear gluten right now. I'm 45 and it's told me I should fear it. Area 51, yes. What else? Islam. Listen, we could go on all day long. All day. Doesn't that bother you? That there's just so many things we're being told to fear. The alt-right, conservatives, progressives, feminists, white supremacists, immigrants, evangelicals, Muslims, Black Lives Matter, anti-vaxxers, evolutionists, creationists, homeschoolers, <laughs> pro-lifers, the LGBTQ community. These are all the things I saw just this morning by scrolling in 10 minutes. Dan, fear this, fear this, fear this. The list goes on and on. 
And what this is doing to us is manipulating us to believe the lie that the enemy's telling us that we're not safe, we're not okay. And so fear compels us towards self-protection rather than self-emptying love. Write that down right now. That is the primary work of fear, to move you towards self-protection rather than self-emptying love. That's the hinge point. That's the tipping point. That's the power of love, of fear, to move us towards isolation, self-protection, rather than the open posture of self-emptying love. Love and fear are at war with each other. 1 John 4.18, yes, we'll get to the Bible right about now. This classic verse, there is no fear in love. 1 John 4.18, if you want to go there. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. This, this verse is the, is, the, is the crescendo of what is happening in the cosmos, what's happening in every human heart. There is a boxing ring, and in one side is fear, and in the other side is love. And love is trying to push fear out of our lives. But vice versa, fear is trying to do the same and knock out love and get it out of our lives. These words were written to a community, a literal community that was splitting because of conflict over social issues, believe it or not. And the Apostle John is laying out this war. Fear, love and fear are opposed to each other. They cannot coexist. They're like oil and water, deep-fried Oreos and Weight Watchers. It, one will win the other. When you let a little bit of fear in, it's like allowing the bonfire that you think is warm and cozy to get outside the bonfire and then just move into the forest. It eats everything else up. But we're being invited out of this posture of fear, out of believing the commercials that are sold to us, out of believing what our politicians are peddling to us, out of our social media feeds blasting at us, out of our amygdala that craves us, we are being invited by the Spirit, by the Father, Son, and Spirit into rising above to a new mind, a new clothing of love. This is the primary mark the primary gift given to the church to not be a tribe, a culture, a group of fear, but of perfect love. This word perfect in this text, perfect love casts out fear. As, as, as Westerners, Americans who have a readily accessible dictionary, we would look up the word perfect and the word perfect would say without error. So we see this verse, perfect love casting out, air, out love, with this kind of perspective that this is a kind of love without any error. It's a standard, a law standard of love. That would be a misinterpretation of the word perfect. The word perfect here is rooted more in a culture and in a Greek culture of understanding the word perfect. The word perfect here is teleia, which we get towards the word telos, if you've ever heard that word before. And teleia means completely whole. Teleia love, completely whole love, is not a law standard. It is a standard, but it's a standard of width, of size, of expanse. Maybe a better way than saying perfect love, maybe it's holistic love. I don't know if you had this experience as a kid. Your parents are taking you to a stranger's house for dinner, and your mom says to you, now you eat everything they give you. You don't just get to eat the one thing you like. Eat it all. 
and then tell them how good it is or tell them thank you? What is my mom instructing me to do? To be holistic in my eating pattern at dinner. Just eat it all. Take it all in. Instead of being partial and picky and choosy and selective. Be perfect. This is the way perfect love is understood in this context. Be whole in your love. Be big and broad and full and expansive in your love. But what does this love look like in real gritty fashion? Well, Jesus gives clarity to this, really uh, um, blunt clarity to this in the Sermon on the Mount. And again, in the Sermon on the Mount, we see this word perfect, telea. When Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who hurt you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Even evildoers do that. If you are kind to only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This passage is the double-clicking of that earlier passage of being perfect in our love and it casting out fear. Jesus is taking the disciples into new territory. Actually, this is the first time ever in all of the scriptures that God says to love your enemies. Up to this point, they have heard the command, love God, love others, love neighbor. That's not a new command. They've heard that in the Shema before. But now they're hearing something completely new and peculiar. And it's not just love your neighbor. And in this text, Jesus is using neighbor to talk about affinity. Someone like you. You've, you've heard it said, love your neighbor. Love someone that's like you, that you have things in common with. That you are, are, are connected with. But I'm telling you, your love has to go more holistic than that. It's natural to love your neighbor. And Jesus establishes that. Everybody does that. It's, it's normal. It's natural. Jesus identifies with that. It's unnatural. It is supernatural to love your enemies. Every religion in the world says love your neighbor. Even my Muslim cleric friend has in his text to love neighbor. It is not unusual to say love neighbor. It is scandalous to say love your enemy. Love the person you can't stand, you're disgusted with, you're repelled by, who you think is doing injustice, who you think is unrighteous, who you think is a heretic. That is unnatural to love that way. And it has become archaic, old, something we can't even remember as a mark of the church. At this point in history, very few people are going to say, define Christianity by love of enemies. It has just dissipated into the past. I don't see that on too many vision statements. Love God, love enemies. Because nobody wants to. It's unnatural. It's really natural to hate enemies. And it's quite profound that at the end of that passage it says, be perfect as the Father is perfect. If you read that with Webster's Dictionary, you'd be like, I can't, God's holy, I can't be that holy. That's not what it's talking about, standard. It's talking about with. Love like the Father loves. See, we know this truth. We sing it in our worship songs. We know that God loves his enemies. We have experienced this love ourselves. 
When I've been opposed to God, when I didn't like God, when I didn't have godly thoughts, God still wanted me, still longed for me, still desired me, still was affectionate towards me. This is Romans. God loved his enemies. While we were still enemies, he loved us. We treasure this truth. But would the go and do likewise part of that? God loves you this way, go and love others that way. That's where we seem to stop short. We have a good news that God loves enemies. And it's not something that we should just gorge on and snack on and keep to ourselves. It's something that is supposed to move through us into the world. It is where God is taking all of humanity. It is the telos. It is the kingdom come where the enemy will be sitting at the table across from you and there will be shalom. You will be surprised who will be sitting there. I like to say this just to be bothersome and because I'm not your pastor, so if you call me a heretic, I'm going to be gone in a couple hours. But I have had to contemplate sitting at the table and looking across and seeing Hitler. Now, I don't know if that's going to be there. I don't know if you, But have I thought about, contemplated the expansive nature of God reaching that far? This is amazing love. This is where God is inviting us to move out of our anger to move off of our soapboxes of who's right, who's wrong, whose politician is better than their politician, who's more informed, educated, enlightened, righteous. All of that is shenanigans. It's all a distraction. And we have given over to the enemy. This kind of love is, if I can suggest, intended to be the primary witness of the church. When I say the word scandalous, something that is scandalous simultaneously attracts, but also grades. This is what enemy love does. It's so peculiar. It's so odd and so weird that we want to be near it, but we're also like, oh. What do Jesus' people do? Who are Jesus' people? They are people marked by loving their enemies. In the first three years, three centuries of the church, and you read extra biblical literature around the history of the church, written by Josephus and Justin Martyr and, and others that were recording what was happening, you see very little records, honestly, of evangelism. They didn't have an evangelism strategy. But you know what you see a lot of? These people are rescuing babies from ditches. They've created triage for enemy soldiers to, to heal them. They, you see marks of Christians loving enemies. And it is this witness that becomes the peculiar force amidst, amidst Greco-Roman religion and even the Jewish religion at that time. It's carved out its own path. It's supernatural. We're being invited into it right now. So my question to you is how does this gospel of enemy love impact you personally? How does it impact you politically? Who is the enemy 
in your own home. We know that can happen, right? Where we begin to be pitted against another. Who is the enemy in your workplace? Who is your enemy in this very church? Who is your enemy politically? These are questions of discipleship. To be kind of saccharine and syrupy and sentimental about love, you know, I don't have any enemies. I don't hate anybody. That's poo. It's not the truth. I mean, I can like have positive thinking or even over-spiritualize my development as a Christian, but this is why Jesus says this to the disciples. Because he knows they have enemies and they hate them. So Jesus has to get explicit because we all live this and feel this, but we're really, really smart and don't say it. Maybe we say it in passive-aggressive ways, in covert ways. Robert Dunbar, an anthropologist, was really curious about how people talk when they're in groups. He wanted to know and categorize like what they talk about the most. So he researched and created a laboratory experience with 1,500 people and discovered that 79% of the time people are talking with each other, they're talking bad about somebody else or another group. We're drawn to fear-based discussion, to contrasting ourselves against another. This is the us versus them way that begins to settle in to the world and then sadly disciple the church to see itself. What does enemy love look like for you? Well, one, one morning in my neighborhood, it's a few years ago, I was walking to work, it was around 8 in the morning, and I glanced across the street, and I saw something that is really odd to see in upstate New York. Maybe it's not as unusual down here, I don't know. But one of our neighbors, Charlie, had scrolled out a Confederate flag off his porch, a, a massive one. Now, right away, as I'm sharing the story, some of you are already saying, well, Confederate flags aren't wrong. You're getting into the semantics of politics. But Charlie scrolled this out to kind of communicate what he thought was his right. And I saw it, and I just kept walking. And the more I kept walking, the voice of love through the Spirit said, What about Shauna? Now, Shauna lives across the street, and she's a black single mom. And I began to imagine Shauna stepping outside in the morning and seeing that right there. Could you imagine that experience for her? Whether you think she's entitled to those thoughts, it's wrong that she has, it does not matter. She is going to be slammed. So I, I came back around, and now it's around 8.30, and I knock on her door, and she opens the door, you know, hair disheveled, still, still waking up, cup of coffee. She's like, Dan, what's, what's going on? What, what's, what's going on? I'm like, don't look now, Shauna. <laughs> she looks, obviously she looks. That's the last thing you say, don't look. And she looks, and just with the sight of it, her whole countenance just. I said, Shauna, what, what can I do? What, what do you need me to do? She's like, I don't know. And so we, 
we go into her kitchen, sit down, and she just begins to weep. She's like, I can't let, I can't let Grayson, her two-year-old son, see that every morning, see that every day. Okay. You want me to confront Charlie? You want me to, what do you, she's like, no, I don't know, I don't know. She's just, she's feeling the amygdala. I don't know. She's like, just give me space. Okay. Well, she's a church-going lady, and that night she went to small group, and she told her small group what, she, what had happened that morning. And really quickly, the small group chose factions. One part of the group said, Shauna, we need to go over there tonight when it's dark and rip that flag down and leave a note on his door. And they started to plan this. And another part of the group is like, Shauna, just ignore it. It'll just go away. Just avoid Charlie. Shauna walked away from that small group knowing that neither option was the option of love. She knew that just avoiding Charlie, what are you going to do? When you're in the grocery store and you see him, you're going to drop down behind the pile of oranges to not be seen? Can you live that way? Is that good for Charlie and good for her? Attacking Charlie she knew, would just exasperate the issue and make him buckle down even harder in his human right to put the Confederate flag out. Something instinctually she knew, this was, this was neither of these were good. They were both fear-based options. Avoid, out of fear. Attack, out of fear. She called me up. The next day, and she said, Dan, I am going to go over and talk to Charlie. Can you babysit Grayson? She's like, if I don't come out of his house in two hours, you need to come get me. So she went over to his house. She baked him a blueberry pie. She knocked on his door, knocked on his door. His car was in the driveway. He never answered. She leaves the blueberry pie there, scribbles a note, and says, Charlie just want to talk. I am your friend. Two weeks go by. Radio silence. Nothing. Could you imagine being in that kind of torment and just nothing, no response? Every couple of days I'd ask Sean, what do you, what, do you, what do you want? The flag is still there. What do you want to do? People, our face, our neighborhood Facebook feed is lit up with, you know, ripping Charlie a new one, and Charlie's entitled to this. This is persecution towards Charlie. I mean, just create, just, and Shauna is just pondering every day how to engage this. One day she's out walking Grayson with her her walker, and, and Charlie pulls into his driveway. And like the paparazzi, she just converges on him and on his window, on his door, knocks on, knocks on his window in his car. Charlie, Charlie, I just want to talk. I just want to talk. And Charlie ignores her, sits in the car for like 15 minutes, trying to pretend that she's not there. Eventually, he gets out of the car and just kind of like pushes past her and starts walking up to the stair, and she just keeps pace with him. Charlie, I just want to talk. I'm your friend. I'm not mad. I just want to talk. Eventually, he gets to the door, and he turns around and says, Damn it, Shauna. Fine. I'll freaking meet with you tonight. Closes the door. She calls me up, and she's like, What the H-E double hockey stack sticks? did I get into? I don't know if I can do this. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't feel safe. I said, Shauna, I'll go with you. She's like, no, I have to go. I said, I'm his friend. So she goes over and he lets her in. And as she walks into his house, she sees the signs of life. 
She sees a human. She sees pictures of grandkids. She sees war paraphernalia from his, his tour in Iraq. She sees a, a recliner chair all by itself with stacks of newspapers. She sees a person. Not an issue. Keep in mind, she was the one that was hurt here. So they sit down at the dining room table, make some small talk. Eventually, she brings it up. And he kind of gives her political answers of why he's entitled to it. And, and you know, they're just, just kind of sparring around rhetoric for a little while. And she just says, Charlie, you don't have to take it down. But it would mean a lot to me if you did. Well, she leaves. Next morning, the flag is down. Now, you would think that's a victory. Wow, he, he buckled. She won the argument, right? She sparred with him, and he's like, okay, you win, and takes the flag down. Fast forward six months, and in Syracuse, we get pummeled with snow. I mean, snow like this, you know, and there's just ditches to kind of get around. And he, they, we get hammered with a snowstorm, and she looks out her window, and Charlie is shoveling her driveway. She goes outside, Charlie, what, what's going on? She's like, you don't have to shovel my driveway. No, no, you're my neighbor. I want to shovel your driveway. You realize something is, she realized something has shifted, right? Some kind of transaction of affection and warmth has happened. This is supernatural. This is beyond rhetoric and whose policy is better and what history the Confederate flag comes from and it, there was a, a dynamic that is unmistakably real and authentic. She goes, okay, okay, thanks so much. And as she's walking away, he yells out to her, Shauna, if you ever want me to babysit Grayson, I'll babysit Grayson. And she's like, great, thanks, right? Uh, he's like, there's no way over my dead body I'm letting that old guy watch my kid, right? So... But one day she's in a bind and she calls him up. She's like, I gotta, I, Charlie, I just got to go to the grocery store for like 20 minutes. Can you just come over? Grayson's already taking a nap. All you got to do is sit in the house. The grocery trip only takes 10 minutes. I mean, she just rushes through this grocery trip. She comes home and, and Charlie is there and she's like, thanks so much, Charlie. I really appreciate it. And he won't leave. You ever have a guest that just seems to kind of linger and find a way not to get to the door? It, it, she's like, um, Charlie, thanks so much for watching. And she realizes he wants to talk. She's like, is there something on your mind, Charlie? And yeah. So she's like, okay, let me make you some tea. We'll sit down and chat. So they sit down and he says, Sorry. He says, Shauna, I think I might be a racist. I mean, that's a powerful discovery for him. And she never called him a racist. He's like, I think I might be a racist. And I'm also realizing, I think you might be my only black friend. I'm sorry. I'm learning. I'm sorry. And she just automatically applies forgiveness. What's so unusual about that story is that Shauna was able to identify the cultural guardrails or kind of cultural uh, fork in the road to only choose attack or avoid. And she's like, no, I am going to carve out my own path. And it's the Jesus path. At the same time, the path works. I'm not a pragmatist, but I am telling you, arguing, defining yourself over and against progressive, conservative is not working. We're in worse shape than we've ever been in. It is going to take a move of affection 
Just like Hebrew says, the kindness of God leads to repentance, which just means change. God moves towards us with kindness, and we change our disposition. She was living that gospel truth. She moved towards him with affection, with kindness, and it dismantled whatever was going on inside him to reconsider a truth he would never have reconsidered if she lambasted him with an argument. This, there's, I have plenty of stories that come from the opposite, opposite political perspective. This isn't about who was right and who was wrong there. It's about identifying the third way of enemy love. This is the untried path. This is the untried narrow path. Every time I deliver a talk like this and people discuss it, they always give me the whatabouts, the yeah, but, the, the, this, the. I'm telling you, we haven't tried this. We've given half but attempts at this. So what I want you to do in closing is to take a little note. I'm going to give you some reflection space. Put it in your phone, put it on a notepad. This is just for you. We're not going to be sharing these answers. I want you to write down, I'm going to give you one minute. Worship team, you can come on up. I'm going to give you one minute to reflect and contemplate just so we can find a way to start Maybe take this little step. Who is an enemy for you? Who is an enemy for you? It might be someone in your family, it might be a neighbor, it might be someone at work might be some person online. I want you to name it. I, I want you to get it out of the abstract, esoteric space and name it and put it down and believe that God's spirit is touching that. I'll give you one minute to just reflect on that. Put it down somewhere.